Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Picture this. In a hidden woodland glade in Illinois, there's a new Garden of Eden called Chandaza. Young women, angels of love, would frolic around the gardens, nude in their bucolic, cloistered paradise. The mystical Mother Maria watches over them, and they're all waiting for a group of men, the Knights of Chandaza, to come and join them in their peaceful retreat. All a man needs to do to become a member and live in peace in Chandaza forever is keep sending their angel pen pals monetary love offerings in the mail. Sound real? Well, it turns out about 30,000 men thought this sounded like just what they were looking for. In the early 1960s, a 30-something, thin, balding, itinerant English teacher named Donald Lowry published a book about his travels through Mexico called Mexico, A Bachelor's Paradise. It was sort of a traveler's guide for men about how to live and travel cheaply in Mexico and pick up women. The book didn't do well, but Lowry had an idea. He reprinted the book under a female author's name. It started selling like hotcakes. He realized there was a market for this kind of advice for lonely men, but coming from women, not from other men. He parlayed this bit of insight into a new idea for a mail-order Lonely Hearts Club. He bought mailing lists from men's magazines and other Lonely Hearts Clubs and started sending out booklets featuring photos and bios of young women he called angels. Men who replied with interest in receiving letters and more photos from the angels could sign up for a small fee. Lowry incorporated his new business after a few years under the name The Church of Love, or COL International. Members received letters from the angels that were often mundane, talking about the details of the angels' lives, or sometimes more romantic fantasies or pretend dates. Many of the angels had hard luck stories of tough backgrounds, abusive marriages, or sometimes drug and alcohol problems, and just rough lives in general. And sometimes the letters asked for money, maybe to help the angel pay for a car repair or a medical expense, or maybe it was a small sum of 10 or $20 just to help the angel cover the costs of the paper, envelopes, postage, and photos she sent. The checks the men sent were called love offerings. The hook was that the men didn't feel that the money they sent was a quid pro quo. They viewed it more as themselves being helpful and chivalrous toward these women they cared about, rather than paying them for their affections. Here are a couple of examples of letters from an angel called Pamela to a Church of Love member named Jessie. 
She's telling him about a typical day in her life where she takes her poodle Gigi to the park. Suddenly, my thoughts were interrupted by a frisbee which landed at my feet. I picked it up quickly before Gigi could get her teeth into it. Four children, all about 11 or 12, were standing near a small pavilion, watching me to see what I would do with the frisbee. I'm pretty good with a frisbee, if I do say so myself, so I threw it to one of the boys. A perfect throw. He threw it back. And for the next hour, Gigi and I were involved in playing frisbee with some children. And for that hour, I was exactly the same age they were. The game ended when one of the boys, trying to show off, I'm sure, threw it a little too hard and it landed several yards out in the river. I really wish you could have been there with us. You'd be shouting and laughing and running around right along with me. And through the children, we would have recaptured together, just for a little while, the glorious magic of youth. And here's another where she tells him something a little more serious. My grandfather has been ill for some time now, and it seems that he's only getting worse. The doctors say he will probably not survive much longer. I can only pray that he feels no pain. For many weeks, my grandfather has been so ill that he does not know who I am at times. Other times, he seems to be all right. Apparently, the condition of his liver is what causes his problems. Now he is incoherent and unable to speak. I doubt that he can even hear me say the words, I love you, Grandpa. He only stares straight ahead and breathes unsteadily. It is good that I can talk to you, darling. This is a time for me to feel sad, and I'm grateful that you're there, because I know you understand how I feel. I wish I could have written you a more upbeat and pleasant letter tonight, but since you are my friend, I thought you wouldn't mind if I let you share a little of my sorrow. I'm not a super religious person but tonight I'm going to say a long prayer for my grandfather. I hope you'll say one for him too. And finally, one of the romance fantasies. It's a bit spicy, but not explicit. I would get your barf buckets ready, but also just remind yourselves that this is from the 1980s. After dinner, I changed into a beautiful burgundy silk nightie, which you and I had chosen together. You told me that the color brought out the rosy glow in my cheeks and really complimented my long legs. I led you to the bedroom and opened the door. I wish I could describe the look on your face. On the bed, there was a beautiful ivory satin comforter, which lay on top of black satin sheets. The pillows were king-sized and stuffed with feathers. They also were covered with satin, and they were trimmed with delicate lace. The whole room was so warm and romantic. You said that it looked like a bedroom that should be featured in a magazine. It didn't take you long to notice the huge painting which was hanging on the wall behind the bed. It was a painting of you and I walking hand in hand through a field of lovely little wildflowers. I had been working on it six months, but the look on your face told me that all the time in the world would have been worth it. I was so happy that you liked it. Next to the bed on the nightstand was a beautiful bouquet of flowers. You picked one of the little daisies and put it in my hair. You told me that I was as delicate and pretty as a little flower. I thought to myself how lucky I was to have you in my life, Joseph. And here's one last note from Pamela about finding a lucky dime. Well, darling, I'm sending the dime to you. If you haven't found it already in the envelope, look again. 
The main reason I'm sending you this dime is to serve as a reminder to you that there are still decent and honest people in the world. Not many, but some. And I'm also sending it to you because maybe, just maybe, it will bring you some good luck. Naturally, I know you're no more superstitious than I am, but anything is possible, isn't it? So keep this dime, darling. Let it always remind you that good people can still come into your life and good things can still happen to you. And also think of it as a small token of my affection for you. If you hold it in your hand and squeeze it hard, you'll feel the warmth of my love coming out of it. Try it. I think it's very possible that you'll have a much better day tomorrow than you realize. Love and kisses, Pamela. So that's just a little taste of the wondrous letters from the Church of Love. But the Church of Love actually went far beyond just love letters from beautiful young women to lonely men. There was a bigger story, and it got a little weirder. The angels purported to be living at what they called the retreat and building a new paradise near Moline, Illinois, called Chandaza, a thinly veiled reference to Shangri-La, the mystical utopian valley from James Hilton's 1933 book, Lost Horizon. The Church of Love also had a figurehead called Mother Maria, who watched over the angels and had supernatural powers, such as telesthesia, a type of psychic ability that allowed her to perform psychic rituals on behalf of COL members. These rituals included things like the circle of love, the sacred fire of Chandaza, and the angelic telesthesia ritual. Of course, these rituals were carried out remotely, as COL's members never met Mother Maria, the angels, or indeed anyone from the Church of Love but they would receive a letter describing the ceremony and letting them know at what date and time it would take place. The supposed rituals would involve something like a bunch of the angels sitting in a circle around Mother Maria and concentrating all their energy on the COL member. For a price, of course. And some members did report feeling a sensation of joy at the appointed date and time. And Mother Maria had other creepy powers, like being able to re-virginize the angels at the retreat, who, as I mentioned, often had hard-knock backstories. Here's a pamphlet about Chandaza that went out in the mail. The header has a large red rose, and it says, Rapture, for those who seek paradise. What is Chandaza? If you were to search the dark corners of your memory, you'd find a dusty, long-forgotten dream. It was a dream of getting away from it all, if only for a little while. It was a dream of escape. It might have been a desert island somewhere in the South Pacific. Or perhaps it was a Shangri-La hidden in the great Himalaya mountains. Or it may have been just a mountain stream full of trout. Chandaza is a dream of returning to a simpler way of life, one of finding peace with oneself, with others, and with nature. It is being in harmony with all things great and small, the plants and trees and flowers, the little brook, the gentle meadow, the birds, and the air we breathe. Chandaza is the song you carry in your heart. It is the smile on your face, your self-assurance, your inner dignity, the love you have for your fellow man. It is your shield. Picture in your mind a peaceful valley ringed by majestic mountains. 
Within the valley, there is a quiet pond, a little brook, a waterfall. There are countless gardens splashed with all the colors of the rainbow. There are soft meadows and paths leading into groves of trees. There is just one large building of unusual design that sits in the middle of the valley. There are no telephone poles, no streets, no cars, no traffic lights, no concrete, no TV saucers or antennas, or any other trappings of civilization. This is a place where the words peace on earth, goodwill toward men really mean something. This is a place where a man could go to unwind and relax completely without the need for drugs or alcohol. Here, he could rearrange his thoughts and rediscover the true values of life. Here, he could find perfect beauty and peace and happiness. And here, he could escape, at least for a little while, the pressures and aggravations and worries of his daily life. There is certainly no denying that everyone needs to do this at least once in his or her life. What is Chandaza? It is a vision, a dream. It is heaven. Uh, okay, good enough for me. Uh, <laughs> Church of Love members who wanted to live at Chandaza when it was completed, some viewed this as their retirement plan, needed to be members in good standing, and the more money they gave, the higher they could rank. They received certificates of membership and titles like Temple Master. Some men signed mystic marriage certificates, believing that when they eventually moved to Chandaza, they would be married to their angel of choice. But here's the deal. There was no retreat. There was no Chandaza, there were no angels, and no Mother Maria. Just Don Lowry, the former English teacher, and the printing press he now owned. He'd invented backstories for dozens of fake women, the angels of love in the booklets he printed and direct mailed to thousands of men. He bought stock photos of models or, in some cases, took pictures of his employees at the print shop and invented bios and personalities, interests, writing styles. He wrote letters and printed and mailed them out en masse to thousands of men who thought they were in individual relationships, in love even, with actual women. Mother Maria? Pictures of her turned out to be Lowry's wife, Esther. By the early 80s, Lowry's con was raking in over a million dollars a year. But all good things must come to an end, and in 1987, Donald and Esther Lowry and an assistant, Pamela St. Charles, were indicted on charges of mail fraud, money laundering, and conspiracy. I'm not exactly sure what proved to be the undoing of the Church of Love. I've heard a couple of stories. In one version, people in Moline, Illinois, where Lowry's print shop operated, got suspicious, especially of his frequent sidewalk sales, where he offloaded all of the gifts that men would send for the angels, including all sorts of odd items like lingerie and women's clothing, and also that strange men would show up to town searching for the non-existent retreat or the angel that they were in love with and hoped to meet. In this version of the story, law enforcement eventually got enough complaints about Lowry to start investigating. In another version, one of Lowry's employees who had posed for photographs as one of the angels was in a car accident and badly injured. 
Lowry saw an opportunity and mailed pictures of her injuries to COL members asking for funds for her medical bills. However, when he did not use any of the resulting influx of funds to help her out, Angel Susan handed him over to the police. Or so the story goes. I'm not sure what the truth is on that one. Either way, Don Lowry was finally caught and the whole thing went to trial. Now, at this point, you might be thinking that Don Lowry would have some pretty angry customers on his hands. But you'd be wrong. And this is where the whole thing gets entirely paradoxical and makes us start to question what the heck could possibly be going on here. Because a bunch of those lonely men that Lowry had been writing love letters to for years, using fictitious characters of women that many of the men believed were real and that they were in love with, and in some cases were in mystic marriages with, showed up. But it wasn't to put his head on a pike. They showed up to defend him. This is hard to understand, but for many members of the Church of Love, they felt that it had made their lives better, that it didn't matter that it wasn't real. A few men testified in court that the letters they received from the angels kept them from loneliness, addiction, and even suicide. Cognitive dissonance could explain some of the reaction, that it would just be too painful to admit that everything they'd invested in the angels, financially and emotionally, had been a waste. Tragically, our brains are all too willing to jettison the facts when confronted with the painful alternative of admitting we were wrong. It's hard to say why, but they didn't want the con to end. Men who testified said things like, I was lonesome, and I had figured that this was real instead of phony. And, I didn't care if they were real, the letters were entertaining. They're nice letters, and they make a man feel good. And for others, it seems they simply decided to keep believing in the angels, no matter what. One said, I told the postal inspector he ruined my life when he stopped the angels' letters. I liked to write them letters and receive them. I never belonged to another group that gave you more for your money. Some of the men had sent thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars to their favorite angels. Some of them had been corresponding with the angels for years, exchanging hundreds of letters, in spite of the fact that what they were receiving back were generic letters mass-produced by Lowry that didn't even respond to their specific letters. I mean, it wasn't as if Lowry was writing personalized letters to each of these 31,000 men. Imagine having a pen pal who, for years at a time, never responded to anything specific that you said. It's tough to understand why these men kept defending the Church of Love, but what had them believing it in the first place? I have a few pages from one of the booklets of women's profiles that Lowry mailed out. I wish I had a few more, but this is what I have. The photos look like sort of typical senior photo type portraits. In this one, she's leaning up against a tree and holding a daisy. Christina Erickson. This is kind of hard for me because I don't know you yet, but I guess I'll start out with my height, which is 5 feet 5 inches, and my weight, which is 116 pounds. I have dark brown hair and my eyes are blue. Have I forgotten anything? Oh yes, my measurements are 36, 24, 35. I'm a small town girl who has found a good home. 
I know that sounds a little strange, but I elaborate more in my photo booklet. Next up, Lori Dubois. I'm sure when you read my photo booklet, you won't see why I'm on the Alpha Council. Well, that's perfectly alright because most of the time I don't see it myself. Maybe I shouldn't say that though because I do work pretty hard for Maria. The most important thing to me is to make members happy, and even if I don't look it in this picture, I'm a really happy person. I'm 5 foot 2 and I weigh 114 pounds, but I'm always on a diet. My measurements are 35, 25, 37. I hope we get to know each other better. Then we have Don Mayfield. Hello, you may be hearing from me once in a while too. I want us to become better acquainted. I'd rather listen to you talk, of course. But since that isn't possible right now, I'll tell you just a little about myself in my booklet so we won't be groping in the dark. I'm five foot three and a half inches and I weigh 104 pounds. Now, I think my eyes are green. They seem to change colors. As I said, I'd rather listen than talk, so I hope my photo booklet doesn't bore you. (laughs) And then lastly, we have Terry Mayfield. Yes, the last name is the same because Dawn and I are cousins. Another cousin of mine, Tammy, is in the Deva order, but that's all the Mayfields for now. I've often been called the most serious Mayfield because I'm so serious about Chandazah. I'll explain more in my photo booklet. I'm 5 foot 3, 110 pounds, and my measurements are 34, 24 and a half, 34. I hope you agree with me about Chandaza. And then here's the request form men could use to request full booklets for the specific woman or women that they liked. Send to Miss Linda Scott, the COL, Hillsdale, Illinois. Dear Linda, yes, I want to get to know the COL angels better. Please send the booklets of the girls I have checked below. I am enclosing a love offering of $5 for each girl's booklet. I understand each booklet contains a big 5x7 color photo of the girl. All girls are nude or semi-nude except the four marked with an asterisk. I also understand some of the girls are very young, and I will therefore keep their booklets in a safe place. I promise I will never let their photos out of my possession, and I will keep future dealings with these girls strictly confidential. Okay, so none of the bios sound like they were written by an actual young woman. In fact, this all sounds like it was written by a pervy old weirdo. But the fact that they aren't convincing might counterintuitively be part of why they work so well. Back when I worked at a university, I remember the IT guy at our department telling me that the reason a lot of email scams seem so obvious is because they're meant to be that way. Like they're intentionally bad and full of typos and weird mistakes because they want to weed out the people who are a little bit less gullible right off the bat. They want to target their attack specifically to that more receptive person because that's a person they can more likely get to do whatever it is they want later on. They're not targeting that savvy person or that critical thinker, in other words. So they're not even trying to make them sound good. That really changed how I think about scams and conspiracy theories, actually. 
In some ways, the worse they are and the less sense they make, the more successful they can be, which is really frustrating. And for the record, this is how a lot of scams work. The reason many of them seem so god-awful on the surface is that they aren't looking for just anyone to bite. They are looking for that specific person who is primed to buy in with some self-delusion. So with any scam and with the self-radicalizing on the internet we hear so much about these days, it's not that the people pushing these scams or pushing the conspiracies are really just so good at it or are so convincing. It seems to be that there needs to be an element of this self-deluding or self-convincing on the part of the mark or the participant. There's a really good book about this. Last year, Shankar Vedantam and Bill Messler came out with a book called Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain. Shankar Vedantam started looking into the Church of Love 10 years ago and ended up writing The Hidden Brain. And this book, Useful Delusions, has a little bit about the Church of Love, but it's more about self-deception more broadly and the function and value of positive illusions in our lives. It's a really good book. I recommend picking it up. But it's a little hard to take if you like to see people, and especially yourself, as fundamentally rational. So in the book, Vedantam explains in his signature nuanced way that the conventional way of looking at a hoax like the Church of Love as a clever con man versus gullible stupid marks is simply not a good enough explanation. The marks participated in their own deception. And it's the psychology and the science and the mechanisms that take place in the brain itself that Vedantam and Messler really delve into in this book. It seems self-evident that seeing things as they are is essential to living your life with any type of competency, but could it be that there is some type of benefit to self-deception? Otherwise, why would it be so pervasive in our lives? In the introduction of Useful Delusions, Vedantam writes, Was it possible, I asked myself, that for at least some members, the Church of Love had provided a valuable service? That couldn't be the case, could it? The whole thing was a hoax. But what then to make of members who said the love letters had saved their lives or kept them from addiction and suicide? A disturbing question popped into my head. Could self-deception ever lead to good outcomes? Again, the moment I asked this question, I began to see plenty of examples. I realized that one reason people cling to false beliefs is because self-deception can sometimes be functional. It enables us to accomplish useful social, psychological, or biological goals. Holding false beliefs is not always the mark of idiocy, pathology, or villainy. As I started to question my assumptions, I began to see cracks in the facade of the Temple of Rationality. I saw that pacts of complicity between deceivers and self-deceivers are not only ubiquitous, but often useful, regularly functional, and sometimes essential. In other words, what the members of the Church of Love were getting out of it didn't depend on whether it was real. It seems that Don Lowry somehow understood all this instinctively, in that certain way con men tend to do. 
At his trial, he defended his operation, saying, The illusion of romance is better than no romance at all. Some people will believe what they want to believe, no matter what you tell them. But actually, he didn't get that quite right, at least not according to Shankar Vedantam, because it's not some people, it's all people. (laughs) Yes, it's so unsettling, but we're all like this. And one of the ways we're like this is so pervasive that it's happening pretty much every waking second of our lives. Most of us assume we're seeing what's in front of us, the information goes to our brains, and then we use our higher brain functions like logic and reasoning to figure out what's going on and what to think about it. Sadly, this could not be further from the truth, and in fact is completely backwards to how we really operate. Taking in our entire environment every millisecond would be way too much data for our brain to process, but our brains are very efficient at taking shortcuts, so they scan our environment and look for familiar models and then feed us a tiny slice of information based on pre-existing experiences and models of things we're already familiar with to cut down the amount of data to something digestible. And of course, all this happens subconsciously. So we think we're experiencing everything going on around us when in fact our brains are processing very little of what's going on, with the result being that our reality is completely subjective and we can't even start from the baseline that we know what's right in front of us. (laughs) Isn't this fun? The toughest part of this to wrap your head around, in my opinion, is that believing things that are false isn't exactly a reflection of intelligence the way most of us assume, but as Shankar Vedantam puts it, it's a reflection of your circumstances. Here's what he writes in the book. Believing what we want to believe and seeing what we want to see, I slowly came to understand, is less a state of mind or a reflection of one's intelligence and more a response to one's circumstances. Forgoing self-deception isn't merely a mark of education or enlightenment, it's a sign of privilege. If you don't believe in Santa Claus or the virgin birth, it's because your life does not depend on your believing such things. Your material, cultural, and social worlds are providing you with other safety nets for your psychological and physical needs. But should your circumstances change for the worse, were the pillars of your life to buckle and sway, your mind, too, would prove fertile ground for the wildest self-deceptions. There are, as we say, no atheists in foxholes. At the core of our troubled relationship with the truth lies a dilemma. We need hope in order to function, but the world gives us endless reasons not to be hopeful. For most people on the planet, to forswear self-deception is to invite despair and dysfunction. So, is it even that important for us to see reality as it is? Nature, or evolution, doesn't care about the purity of reality. It only cares about what works and allows us to continue functioning from day to day. Evolution is a process not of perfection, but of good enough. Therefore, if deluding ourselves allows us to think something that makes it worth going on for one more day, then that's more beneficial than viewing things in the cold light of reality if that makes us want to just give up. To sum things up in one sentence from the book, 
It's a grave mistake to think that evolution is remotely interested in helping us perceive reality accurately. (laughs) Basically, to the human brain, nothing could be less relevant than reality, which puts a lot of things into perspective, especially if you happen to follow politics. Evolution has shaped us not only to act on instincts that are based on some very questionable mental shortcuts, but then also to think that we are acting out of rationality. But I understand it is tempting to write off these guys that went for the church of love as just gullible. Naive realism is an idea from social psychology where we simply put ourselves in someone else's shoes and ask ourselves how we would feel in their place. If our reaction is different from theirs, we assume that they are wrong or stupid because, of course, our own reaction is the correct one, and that would be naive on our part. So most of us, in simply putting ourselves in the shoes of a member of the Church of Love, would take a naive or simplistic approach and simply assume that someone like this must be unintelligent, gullible, pathetic, even ridiculous. But by Vedantam's more nuanced way of thinking about the brain, we see that we'd be taking a very privileged approach and simply ignoring the circumstances that might lead a person to try to fill a deep void in their life in such a way. And it's important to remember that there were over 30,000 of these guys, and many of them were highly educated professionals. The members of Church of Love really came from all walks of life, doctors, lawyers, professors, a former chemical engineer at Dow Chemical testified at the trial, so did an aerospace engineer who'd worked on the Hubble Space Telescope. This man testified that he'd truly believed in Chandaza. He said that, quote, I believed it would be like a utopian community. He'd sent thousands of dollars to the fictional angels. I do have a lot of empathy for these men. Loneliness is a terrible state of being. I wish no one would ever be lonely. And they certainly didn't deserve to be scammed. Romance scams are particularly heinous. But while I am doing my utmost to be sympathetic toward the plight of these Knights of Chandaza, I do find myself hitting a wall after a certain point. It is hard to make a friend and harder for some of us than for others based on our circumstances. But I do have to stop and ask myself, is there any other way to make a friend in this world that does not involve ordering nude photographs of young women out of a catalog in the mail? (laughs) Our good friend Shankar Vedantam would have us believe these guys weren't in it for the lusty young ladies. They just needed a friend or as he puts it in Useful Delusions, Lowry discovered his most loyal customers weren't sex perverts, but nice men who desperately wanted to feel needed. Well, he's the expert, not me, but it seems like there are plenty of ways to make yourself genuinely useful to other people without limiting yourself to quid pro quos with desperate young co-eds. This thing was called a church, after all, if these guys were willing to believe anything and wanted to make friends and help the needy, why not join an actual church? (laughs) It is a great way to meet people. No one wants to be your friend more than a Mormon missionary. 
Problem is, I don't think they do nudes. Regardless, the Church of Love did come to an end, for better or worse. But not without one more weird twist. After a guilty verdict was handed down in their trial, Don Lowry and his young assistant, Pamela St. Charles, went on the run, fleeing to Montreal, which set off an international manhunt for the two. They were tracked down two months later in Florida as they visited a post office box to pick up funds from loyal Church of Love followers who still believed in the angels and that Lowry was simply the victim of a witch hunt. That's right, Church of Love members were still supporting him and sending money even after he'd been convicted of the con. Don Lowry ended up sentenced to 27 years in prison. He served 10, then got parole. He died in 2014. After a few years in prison, Pamela St. Charles moved and changed her name. She later said she was a victim of Lowry and that he'd misled her. I found no mention of Don Lowry's wife, Esther Lowry, after a 1987 newspaper article mentioning her name in the indictment alongside Don and Pamela. She was not part of the manhunt and doesn't appear in other coverage, so I assume she was never convicted of anything in the scheme, but I'm not sure what became of her. Well, darlings, in the words of one of the great wordsmiths of our time, I think it's very possible that you'll have a much better day tomorrow than you realize. Love and kisses, Pamela. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at failedutopiapod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.